The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash. This week, we dive into the topic of uterus transplant. That's right, uterus transplant. We are now living in the era of uterus transplant. We go deep with gynecologist fertility specialist, Dr. Anthony Marin. Dr. Marin opens up about the what, why, who, where and how of womb transplantation. Before we listen to Anthony, I wanted to share with you some interesting facts from the RPA Uterus Transplant Unit here in Sydney. Did you know that one in six couples cannot conceive? That up to 5% of infertile women may have absolute uterine factor infertility, and that means they don't have a functioning uterus, or they may not have a uterus at all. These women cannot conceive, they can't carry or deliver a child. In 2014, a 36-year-old woman became the first in the world to give birth to a baby via a donated uterus. More than 70 uterus transplants worldwide have been performed, and 16 live births have been reported following a uterus transplant. A bit about Anthony. I've known Anthony for more than a decade. We worked together at RPA as obstetrics and gynecology trainees. And since then, I've always known him to be a really hardworking, passionate, determined doctor. Before coming to RPA, Anthony obtained his medical degree from the University of Newcastle, where he was awarded the Faculty of Medicine Medal, recognising academic excellence throughout the medicine program. He subsequently completed a Master of Medicine in Reproductive Health and Human Genetics from the University of Sydney. He then trained in obstetrics and gynaecology at Sydney's Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and then qualified as a subspecialist in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Anthony loves to offer comprehensive evidence-based female and male fertility treatments. In addition to IVF, he's also a skilled laparoscopic surgeon and loves his complex surgeries such as endometriosis and tubal reversals. He has a specific interest in the investigation and management of recurrent miscarriage, pre-implantation genetic testing. He's also experienced in fertility preservation for females and males about to undergo chemotherapy. He has an active interest in research and is currently the research lead in academic gynecology at the Institute of Academic Surgery at RPA in the University of Sydney. He is undertaking projects in uterus transplantation, which we're talking about today, recurrent miscarriage, implantation failure, and the use of robotic surgery in gynecology. You'll find Anthony consulting at RPA Hospital in Sydney, at the Martyr in North Sydney, and North Shore St. Leonard's. My question to Anthony in this podcast was, do you sleep? Listen to the episode to find out how many hours he needs to snooze to power through the day. Dr. Marin, Anthony Marin, or are you Associate Professor Marin? No, 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 just, just still doctor. <laughs> um, thanks for chatting today. That's okay. I appreciate how busy you are. That's right. I wanted to ask you your uterus transplant vision. You've got lots of visions. I know you're interested in many things. Why did you choose this one to focus on for the moment? Yep. Um, so I, th- I, I, I think it's well recognised that infertility is quite distressing for couples and particularly the group that's born without a uterus, the MRKH group, I think they sort of find out about their infertility at quite a young age. Um, and I think it's at quite a critical age where there's lots going on and people are just discovering themselves. 
Um, Can you just explain to our listeners what that is? Yeah, so MRKH, uh, also known as Meyer-Rokitansky-Kusterhauser syndrome, uh, it's essentially where they're born without their uterus, cervix and upper part of the vagina. Uh, so they develop normally in every other way. So they have normal breast development, normal pubic hair development. Uh, and they usually get diagnosed because they go along to their doctorate, you know, 15, 16, 17, uh, without a period. Um, and so they're obviously at a very vulnerable stage of their life. Uh, and to be told at that young age that they're born without, you know, their uterus and they're often sort of told fairly bluntly that they're not going to be able to have children is, is obviously incredibly devastating for them. Uh, and it has a massive impact on them and it has a massive impact on how they see themselves. Uh, and, and really, I just think it's quite sad and unfortunate that, you know, this is just a congenital anomaly that is, has such a devastating impact on these women. And so I think to be involved in something that tries to correct that um, and gives them the opportunity to achieve a pregnancy and, and carry a pregnancy, I, th I think is actually important and, 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 and rewarding. When was the aha moment for you that you wanted to work on this? Uh, you need to realise it was going to be a thing for you to do. Yeah, so so um, one of my academic roles is, is, is with the Institute of Academic Surgery, which is a joint venture between Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and the University of Sydney. Uh, and, and Associate Professor Sydney Ching was talking about how uh, the hospital was supporting her with facial transplantation. And again, that's something that's not done in many centres around the world. Uh, and she was talking about, you know, how, how the hospital was supportive and, and, and are prepared to sort of financially fund it. And to be honest with you, up until that point, I, I just kind of never really sort of thought that the hospital would actually fund something like uterus transplantation. Um, and it was really sort of listening to her that I then sort of started to think more about it and started to sort of reach out to different centres around the world um and and you know we, we we ended up sort of collaborating with the Dallas group so the Baylor group in Dallas uh and here we are we've, we've got a, a trial approved and, and and we've got it funded people often say endometriosis is super common why doesn't doesn't do why don't more groups focus on creating clinics specifically for endometriosis why spend it on uterus transplant um, yeah, look, look I th I, it's, it's a good question. And I, and I think at, at the end of the day, I think there does need to be funding uh, for a whole range of, of medical conditions. And I, I think, you know, there is a big push for more funding for endometriosis. And certainly at the hospital that I work at, we do actually have a separate endometriosis clinic. Um, and we have lots of surgeons that are highly skilled in the treatment of endometriosis and we have a, a lot of endometriosis sort of surgery. Uh, there's no doubt that uterus transplant, is, it's a smaller group of people. Uh, What's the incidence? How many girls a year are born with this? So it's about one in four and a half thousand. Oh, so it's quite uh, common. So it's relatively common. And mm. So if you look at data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, we think that there's probably about two to two and a half thousand women of reproductive age in Australia with MRKH syndrome. Uh, and certainly this is not going to be something that's going to be present or it's not going to be a service that's going to be offered out of every hospital. It's only going to be offered out of really large hospitals that basically have 
a, a thorough multidisciplinary team that's going to be able to sort of successfully sort of manage these patients. Mm. Um, and I think it depends really on how busy we as a service get. Uh, so, for instance, if you know if we're only going to be doing you know a handful of cases a year, then it's likely that you know well, what probably should happen is we should probably be the only centre that does the procedure surgically, but there will be other centres around Australia that will manage other aspects of their care, for instance, the obstetric side. Um, whereas obviously if we are getting progressively sort of busier and busier, then other states will need to have centres that come online that can do the surgery as well. So I'm a woman. My sister doesn't have a uterus. She has this condition that you talk about. Yep. I want to donate my uterus to her. We come and see you in your rooms and he sent Leonard's. Yep. Uh, you sit us down. How does a conversation go? What would you? How would you approach that? Um, so, in as far as, so so if if someone's born without a uterus, so so there's the other aspects that we need to make sure um, have been addressed. So, for instance, um, you know, not only they're born without a uterus, but they're born without the upper part of the vagina. So, we need to make sure that. That the you know things like vaginal length and things like that are adequate to allow sort of you know sexual functioning and things like that. Um, it's Is that not... the first thing that generally happens? That's the first priority in managing these patients. Oh, I suppose it, like I suppose it depends on where uh, where in their diagnosis are they. So mm-hmm. if they're right at the beginning, then 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 no. But if they're at the sort of stage where where they're talking about reproduction and so mm. like the initial diagnosis has all been done, then. Um, and I think what's probably important is that uterus transplantation is not the only option for these people. So there is, you know, options of, you know, surrogacy, you know, adoption, um, remaining sort of child-free. Um, and each of those obviously has their sort of pros and cons. Uh, Say I decide I don't want surrogacy, doc, I want my sister's uterus. Yep. So at this point in time, at this point in time with our trial, um the donor or the potential donor has to be aged between 40 and 65. Uh, the upper limit is, is obviously just because we don't want, you know, obviously a woman by the age of 65 would have gone through menopause. Uh, and it's not so much the uterus, but it's more actually the sort of the health of the blood vessels that are sort of going to and from the uterus that's important. So that's the reason why there's a sort of an, an, an upper limit. In terms of a lower limit, this is something that uh, we did sort of go backwards and forwards with ethics with. Uh, so some countries have done or have used donors relatively young in their 20s. Um, and I think the big concern that is, is you know, even though someone might be in their sort of 20s or 30s, might believe that they've completed their family and they, you know, don't have a, a, a need for their uterus. But we, we do know that, you know, people do sort of regret decisions like that you know people may repartner and obviously if someone has had had their uterus removed then then uh, you know they're not going to be able to uh, you know to make decisions easily sort of moving forward so so we have have a lower limit of of 40 at this stage and, and that may be something that sort of changes in the future like you might have some special consideration cases you mean for example yeah so so i think well i think i think once we start to have a few cases 
And because at this stage, each time we are going to do a case, we are going to present the donor recipient sort of pair to the ethics committee. Um, and so I think, you know, if we've got someone who, you know, has had a you know, reasonable number of children and, you know, they might be like 38, for instance, um, then, you know, we, we might sort of, you know, ask for an, for an exemption sort of based on that. But, but at this stage, it's sort, of, it's sort of, you know, 40 is our lower limit. Okay. So I'm, I'm a, a potential donor. I'm 45 years of age. Yep. So that's, that box ticked. Yep. Uh, so, so essentially we then have, well, they go through a, a whole lot of assessments. So there's obviously history and examination and a series of, of investigations. So the main thing is that we want our donors to have uh, proven reproductive history um, and we also want them to have had at least one prior live birth and it's important that the pregnancy's gone beyond 34 weeks. So we don't want uh, a a situation where a a, a donor's had a series of quite early sort of losses or something like that. Um, In terms of these sort of investigations, you know, it's a series of sort of blood tests and the lesser invasive ones are like the ultrasound. So we want to make sure that the ultrasound looks normal um, so they haven't got like a big fibroid in the uterus or, or something like that. Um, and once we do all the sort of uh, less invasive investigations, then we start to do some m- more significant investigations. So we do CT scans to look at the blood supply to the uterus. Yeah, I was going to say that'd be pretty important, wouldn't yeah. it? Um, and, and that's also, where the vascular team comes in? Correct. So you work yep. closely with them. Yep. Um, and then we also do MRIs to basically look at the blood supply away from the uterus, so the venous drainage as well. Um, and so each of those investigations um, are they're not necessarily invasive, but they do the CT scan involves radiation. You know we have to give you know contrast. You know they take time. You know they cost money. So we sort of do those sort of as secondary investigations once all the initial ones show that the person sort of you know is, is, is would be suitable to donate. Uh, so they basically get sort of worked up in that perspective uh and then once we're happy that that they get counseling too yeah so 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 certainly then then they start to then start to see the 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 team so the donor basically goes off and sees the gynae oncologist because the type of hysterectomy that's done is is really like a radical hysterectomy which is a bigger hysterectomy which is done on women with cervical cancer what what does that operation take away from a woman so the main thing there from, from, from the donor's perspective is we take the upper one to two centimetres of the vagina. Uh, so that has some potential implications for later on. Um, but as well as that, the other thing is that, is that we actually take the blood vessels wider in the pelvis so that we can actually use those blood vessels to attach to so the recipient. So radical hysterectomy, is it? Yeah. So... So the, the the donor basically you know has that procedure done. So they they see the gynae oncologist, where the gynae oncologist is really their advocate in in all of this. So they really go through you know what's involved, um, what the risks, both short and long term, are. Um, likewise, our recipients see the transplant surgeons. Um, the recipients also have to see. The transplant physicians, so the people that are going to manage all the, you know, immune rejection type medications. Um, the recipients also have to then go on and sort of see the obstetricians and 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 the neonatologists, and certainly they also 
all have to see collectively, including their partners, um, the counsellor and also a perinatal psychiatrist. So no wonder you need a big unit to do all yeah, of this. That's a correct. lot of people involved. It is, yes, yeah. And what's the workup generally in, t- in terms of time, timeline-wise? Is it, it's obviously months, isn't it? Yeah. Or is it years? Uh, no, it's, it, it's it, I, I, I think if you had the luxury of being able to do everything quite quickly, then you could probably push everything into a couple of months. But just in reality, it probably takes about sort of four months. And and as well as that, you know, we have these multidisciplinary team meetings where we all come together and we all basically air our concerns and things like that. Um, and we're also in situations like where, you know, if you go and do CT scans and MRIs on people, you'll find incidental things that might hold them back. That that that, that mm. you know you weren't necessarily expecting, and you're trying to work out: is this significant? Is it not significant? Can they still, you know, donate, uh, or or you know, in the case of the recipient, can they receive the uterus? And so there's all these little sort of stumbling blocks that sort of that sort of happen. And what about the immunosuppressive agents that you put the recipient on? Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So. Um, so essentially the immunosuppression sort of starts at the time of the surgery. So they, they do get a big uh, a lot of immunosuppression sort of whilst they're asleep. Uh, and then they, they either go home on either two or three agents. Uh, we have lots of experience with immunosuppression and pregnancy, you know, because there's lots of people with kidney transplants that are achieving pregnancy. Uh, the medications are safe, so they're not associated with an in, in increased risk for the babies. Um, the most important thing to say is that long-term in, immunosuppression is not great for the woman. So what we actually do with the uterus transplantation is that we're aiming to achieve one to two children, and then at the end, at the end of the, those children, um, then we basically remove the uterus, um, and then that way we can actually stop the immunosuppression. And how long um, until you wait till she's pregnant for the first time before you pull the plug? Say if she's been trying for two years and she's got her uterus, she's ready to rock and roll, but it's just not happening. Yep. At what point do you say, we are not going to be able to achieve this, let's remove the uterus? Have, yep. you, have you come across that in your... Uh, so so, so we, we obviously haven't come across that at this stage. My understanding is that there is a patient in Sweden uh, where there's been that discussion with. Uh, and again, I think that's probably what we would do with most fertility patients. You know, I, I think it's a matter of trying to work out, you know, whether or not this is an embryo problem or whether or not there's something else that's going on. Um, one of the requirements to actually sort of have the procedure is that, is that the recipient has to have at least four good quality embryos in storage. So, you know, we're hopefully putting ourselves in a position where we've got embryos that are, have a high likelihood of achieving a positive outcome. Um, if, for instance, our recipient or our potential recipient may be sort of 42 um, and let's say they aren't getting good embryos, um, provided that they were prepared to use donor eggs, for instance, then we would still sort of go ahead. Um, so obviously, you know, we would work that person up as we would with any other you know, IVF patient that's not achieving a pregnancy. And if we were convinced that there was some underlying uterine issue and that was the reason why that we couldn't overcome, then, yeah, we would have to have a, a significant conversation about removing the uterus. And the embryo transfer procedure in the recipient, how is that different to a woman who doesn't have a donated uterus? Uh, so 
So it, it, it's not that different, to, to, to be honest with you. Uh, the main thing is, is that where the vaginal bits get sutured together, uh, one of the issues that comes up in all the centres is that you often get some scarring around there. So you just need to make sure that when you pass the speculum that you can actually physically sort of see the cervix so that you can do the transfer. So you'd be doing a mock transfer obviously beforehand, yeah. 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 And so some people have needed to go to theatres and have some of that scar tissue sort of divided. Wow. And what led to your collaboration with Dallas? So we uh, basically reached out to a few centres around the world and they basically got back to us very promptly. Uh, We then had some Skype sort of conversations with them that they were extremely happy to sort of support us they basically just sent us over all of their protocols and everything they invited us over to Dallas so Did we you sort wine of, and dine them uh, well they wine and dined <laughs> us actually <laughs> so um uh so we yeah we certainly had some uh, good uh Texan barbecue <laughs> um so we uh so you know we went over there and they were absolutely lovely and and very much giving of of all their information and experience um they've basically put their hand up and and basically said that they're happy to come out to australia to sort of help us with our first couple of cases it's good there's a direct flight from dallas to sydney every 17 hours yes (laughs) um and and the other thing is is you know like like as results come down for our prospective donors and, and recipients they're happy to review them so all the imaging and things like that um, I assume they've got a database that you might be part of. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so they've just their willingness to collaborate has just really been amazing, and and they've been so supportive. Um, so, so you know, we're 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 quite fortunate that that that, that we have them on board. How long have they been doing this for? Uh, so they've um, so they're the probably the second largest centre. So the Gothenburg Group in Sweden were the first and probably the largest, although the, in terms of actual numbers of doing them, uh, Dallas is certainly sort of catching up. Um, and I'm not exactly sure how many children how many, how, how many children being born from, from that unit alone now, but, but Yeah, that was my next question. Yeah, when, when, when we were there, there, there was quite, we, we met quite a few people that were actually sort of pregnant at the, at the time, um, so that was quite exciting sort of seeing them and sort of seeing what, what sort of investigations they were having throughout the pregnancy and things like that. And in terms of the pregnancy... Is the recipient more likely to have complications related to the placenta? I'm just thinking a change in blood flow. Are there more complications in pregnancy? I mean, it's a super high-risk pregnancy, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so so there's no doubt that... that, that, that um, and I, th- I think there's, there, there's, there's basically been 22 sort of births worldwide. So, so where it's hard is that the numbers are incredibly small. So in terms it's still pretty of pretty amazing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, but in ter- in terms of being able to give you a percentage of patients that end up with like gestational diabetes or high blood pressure or things like that, it, it's just too small to sort of really sort of know. Um, but essentially, you know, they have to see one of the maternal fetal medicine people even before the transplant is done. They have to see the neonatologist. Um, the deliveries are via cesarean section, and that's for a whole lot of different reasons. Um, one of which is that the uterus is not receiving any sort of nervous innovation, so there's a, a belief that the uterus won't contract and allow a vaginal delivery. Plus, also you don't want to be putting all of the joints under sort of. Yeah, I never that, thought about the nerves and the nervous system yeah. with the uterus. Yeah. Um, so, so they're all via cesarean sections, um, and the cesarean sections occur at sort of 37 weeks. 
Um, there have been some deliveries that have occurred earlier, um, but none at a at a, like an extreme prematurity. So there hasn't been a issues with that at this stage, although that is going to happen with time. Um, and likewise, and likewise, there hasn't been any sort of significant morbidity associated with high blood pressure and things like that. So you know they are incredibly high risk pregnancies they are monitored very very carefully but to give you a, an exact figure in terms of what is the percentage of preeclampsia and things like that is just too small to, to to know at this stage so you've got a couple of cases coming up at rpa this year yes what is your plan for monitoring those ladies should they get pregnant yep so uh one of our requirements is that people have to be in sydney um for the procedure and the pregnancy so we're actually asking people to relocate at this stage and not leave sydney that whole time yes <laughs> <laughs> uh and 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 so essentially um dr narayan who's one of the maternal fetal medicine people who will sort of be managing the the, the pregnancies uh and so they'll be sort of seen sort of quite frequently right from the beginning um, and as well as that, the way in which we actually screen for immune rejection of the uterus is via doing cervical biopsies, um, and they sort of start. How fascinating! Yeah, so they actually start fairly early on in the piece. So just quite like regularly. a punch biopsy. Yep, exactly right. Yep. Mm. Um, How many of those would they get? Uh, so in, initially, it's like every two weeks, and then it sort of spaces out. Wow! Yeah. Lucky the cervix heals quite quickly. It does yes. Yeah, good blood supply. Yes. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah. So you're excited about your first case? Uh, excited and anxious, yeah. Are you the almost producer? You know how we've got producers in movies? Are you yes. the producer of this whole thing? Are you, you're coordinating everything? Correct. Yeah, so, so yeah, so I'm the, um, the trial lead or whatever, whatever term you want to, to, to use. Um, so I sort of do the initial sort of workup. Um, I'm obviously heavily involved in the IVF sort of component. Um, the surgical cases have been done on my operating list. Um, How many so, yeah. hours are you putting aside for that on your list? Uh, so the the hysterectomy and then the transplant will take the entire will, will take day. The, the entire day. Yeah. yeah, enough for tea breaks, loo breaks, all of that stuff. That's right. So <laughs> well, yeah. So we're hoping uh, we have a ten hour list. It's probably going to go over, but 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 yeah. Amazing. I yeah. wish you the best. Thank you. Um, are there social media groups that women with this condition could could consult or go to? Uh, yes. So the MRKH support group in Australia is uh, Sisters for Love. Sisters for Love. I love it. So they're sort of quite active and they're also quite active with a global MRKH group. Uh, and so we've actually got um, Alison Hensley, who's really the sort of co-founder, uh, she's actually on our protocol, uh, and so patients are given her details. So, and, and many of the patients already sort of know her anyway. But if patients don't know her, they can sort of contact her for a, a additional sort of support. Um, we also have a, you know, she she also contributes with the multidisciplinary team, uh, and as well as that, uh, we actually have a external data safety monitoring board, and there's actually another. MRKH person who's actually on that as well. So, so when our cases happen, um, there's an external group that will actually look at all of our data collected, all of our outcomes, and they'll just basically make sure that that 
you know, what we're saying we're going to do in our protocol is being done and that, you know, our complication rate's not too high and things like that. So we've actually engaged um, with the patient support groups, you know, because we actually think that that's actually quite important. Um, and they've also been really helpful in terms of getting the word out there that, that this trial is actually sort of happening. In terms of short-term, long-term complications for both donor and recipient, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so from a donor's perspective, so obviously there's the short-term risks of the surgery, so things like bleeding or infection or clots in the legs or you know things like that. Um, the longer-term things that we're particularly sort of worried about is because we're taking the upper one to two centimetres of the vagina, we're shortening the vagina. Uh, and so there is a concern in regards to sexual dysfunction later on. Um, now, most of that data comes from women who have had cervical cancer. And women who have had cervical cancer, they are often also exposed to radiation. So it's a bit hard to know, mm -hmm. again, a direct comparison. Um, but the cervical cancer data would say that sexual dysfunction occurs in probably around about sort of 10 to 15%. Um, again, the gynae oncologist is really the advocate for the donor. And so that sexual dysfunction will be screened for. And if there is problems with sexual dysfunction, then, you know, for instance, you know, they might undergo dilated treatment to try and get length back in the vagina and things like that. It's pro probably more successful in terms of it working than someone who's been exposed to radiation. Correct. I would, I would think. Um, Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then likewise with the recipient, you know, there's all the immediate sort of short term, you know, all the bleeding infection and all that again. Um, um, and, and, and then I think longer term, it, it, it's, it's it's often what's associated with the immune suppression you know that that, that that's the thing that you know where, where there can be an increased risk sort of longer term um and obviously complications of pregnancy and so on and these women are ultimately signing up to have quite a few big operations you know there's the the, the actual sort of transplant there's the cesareans that are associated with it and and, and then there's a hysterectomy at the end mm. um, and hopefully a baby too correct um and then the other thing is is obviously the psychological aspect to it. So um, from the donor's perspective, um, one of the things that sort of struck me is that because a lot of our donors are uh, mothers to daughters uh, and even though those mothers haven't done anything that have caused um, this problem in their in their daughters, I think there's just this inherent guilt mm, mm. That, that that happens. But also an empowering thing to know that they might be able to help their daughter in some yeah. way. That, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? And it, that's it is. the ultimate sign of love. It is, yeah. yeah. So um, so there's all the psychological aspects about, you know, giving up a uterus. Um, and then there's also the, you know, the, the psychological aspects of, well, what if this doesn't work, you know? Mm, so, mm. And, and that's really what... You know, having the counsellors and the psychiatrists is really sort of important so that they can sort of explore, you know, people's opinions and how that how they will feel if this doesn't work and and things like that. How about live versus dead donors? Yep. So we're doing live donors. Um, the issues with deceased donors are. So 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 one thing at, at the so for for instance with. Uh, deceased kidney donors uh, or liver donors, um, the history that's taken doesn't have much in regards to fertility so you, or, or reproduction. So we don't know, you know if they've had deliveries that were term or preterm and things like that. So there would have to be a whole change in what information is collected. Mm. Um, 
as said, we do a fair amount of investigations on the donor, so CT scans, MRIs, you know, internal ultrasounds, and even things like getting a HPV virus test back in time. Um, so there's a whole lot of sort of challenges there. And then the other thing is, as a unit that's sort of just starting out, um, obviously the group from Dallas, we need to give them some warning to sort of be here to assist us with our first couple of cases. So, you know, we, we can't just ring them up and say, oh, we've got a deceased donor, we want to do the case tomorrow, can you come on over? So, mm. so I think we haven't closed the door on deceased donors, um, but I think what we will do is we will get some cases up and running. We'll probably look at um, the deceased donors for other organs that are done over a period of time and try and make some kind of assessment in terms of how many of those would potentially be suitable. And then in that situation there, um, it's something that we may look at trying to explore. Um, what is quite amazing is, is how many people are actually just ringing up saying, you know, I don't know anyone that needs a uterus, but I'm actually just happy to give mine. Mm. Um, and we've that's because women are so amazing. Yeah, so we're that that, that like very we're, giving. Yeah, we're 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 getting a couple of phone calls a week of people who are just saying, "That's great." Uh, you know, I'm I'm forty. I'm who's taking those calls? Do they call RPA? Where do they? Yeah, call? they do. Yeah, so I can see a pamphlet over there: RPA uterus transplant trial. Yeah. So okay. yeah, so we have a, a research sort of coordinator that at, at this stage is 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 taking all the phone calls, um, and we're also in the process of employing a a, a nurse as well. So in the show notes, perhaps we'll have some information for people who are listening who are interested. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to talk about today in, re in regards to uterus transplant before I ask some personal questions from you, Dr. Marin? Uh, no, I think that's all good. Excellent. All right. Now a bit about you. Actually, no, I had one more question for oh, you. Yes. Fast forward, I mean, in, in listening to this, you talking about this, I think, wow, how amazing that... It, what, it wasn't until the late 70s that we started doing IVF treatment and suddenly yes. we're now putting a uterus in another woman's body. Yes. What do you see in the future for women's health? Say 5, 10, 20 years from now, is there anything that you can see happening that will blow people's minds uh, well, that you can talk about? Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, as you know, like women are born with the total number of eggs. Yep. And women lose these eggs at a quite an alarming sort of rate, uh, and so I think, I, 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 and there's a huge amount of work that's going on in regards to, you know, trying to preserve ovarian function, and I think that that's probably, I, I, I think that's going to be the thing that is going to change the most. So several, ovarian anti-aging, maybe. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that happening too. Um, because it, 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 at the moment it's just a, it just seems like a complete waste that mm. that each month someone ovulates one but they lose, you know, half a dozen, dozen or, or, or more eggs, you know. Yeah, but I, I kind of often think that the body is so clever, it's much more clever than we know it. Yes. And uh, yeah, we'll see. That, that, that's a very interesting thing to look out for though, but I yeah. can see that happening, the anti-aging. Yes. All right. Now, I've always wanted to ask you this question. Which people have been your biggest inspirations in your life? So, look, look I, think, I think for most people, I, 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 think, they're, I think their parents are, are a huge inspiration. Certainly that's, that, that's the same with me. So, 
Um, so you can't really sort of go past that. Um, in terms of, in terms of, tell us a bit about your parents. Yep. So, um, so my, my parents are both still alive. So, um, Margaret and Alan, uh, and, Hello, Marg and, Alan. <laughs> um, and, and look, they, 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 they were just people that basically had sort of no specific expectations. They were happy just to support whatever, just, you know, whatever, you know, the, myself, and my two, my two sisters, um, sort of wanted to do and and they're just constantly there and constantly supportive and and you know always there to sort of back us up so so you know they certainly are sort of quite quite sort of amazing um, I think going through uh, medicine you do it's funny how you end up like I never thought I would do obstetrics and gynae like I was always going to go off and do you know I actually thought I was going to do cardiothoracic surgery but it, it wasn't until you know, I, I met a, a an obstetrician gynecologist in Gosford Hospital, uh, John Palmer, who really good old John. John, yeah, and he just really just took an interest and actually. And it's actually did he take a, you under your wing? Yeah, he he, he did. Yeah, and uh, and I he I, he just made ONG just quite exciting. Uh, and as I said, like I was like very surprised that I sort of liked it, uh, and. I still was planning on going off and doing surgery and then I thought, oh, look, I'll just do a six-month term in obstetrics and gynae and get it out of my system and I never left. Um, so I think it is. It's, it's, it's often just people who you run into mm. along the way that... Yeah, he actually, was definitely memorable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just take an interest and yeah. and they just sort of support you and yeah. and before you know it, you're somewhere where you never really planned on being. Yeah, so. I remember surviving Gosford, I feel, because of him. He was very supportive. Yes, so if he's listening, <laughs> anyone else? Um, he's probably the main he's probably the main sort of person. Um, I think probably the only other person that's had a big influence on me is um, as, as, as you know I, I've, I've had a few um, cardiac surgeries and my pediatric cardiologist was actually someone that was really so supportive when I was younger. Amazing. So I spent a lot of time in hospital, mm. um, sort of in high school. Who was that? Uh, a guy called Casey Lau. Is so he he's around? Retired. He's yep. alive, but he's retired. Casey. Um, and so he was someone that uh, spent a lot of time uh, with me. Oh, hence your interest in cardiothoracic yeah. then. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Yep. Yeah, so, and, and yeah, so he was just very, very caring and, and, and yeah, he, he was great. So he was probably the reason uh, that really sort of got me interested in doing medicine. Fantastic. And do you get a chance to read much? I like, do. Yeah, you do. Non non medical. Non medical. Yes. Yeah. Like, would well, yeah? Do you like? Do you have any books you wanted to share with us that you, you so like that you recommend? Non fiction World War Two books. Do you really? I do. Yeah. Yeah. So he, you and Wally Birrell would get along, isn't he? Into war books as well. He is. Yeah. yeah. So, so Anthony Beaver is someone who is a bit of a prolific writer. So he writes sort of fairly big non fiction novels on you know like D Day, Berlin, Stalingrad. So, so yeah, I'm constantly reading. Wow, Have you been to Berlin? Books. No, I haven't, but I... I oh, Anthony, I, you have yeah. to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did not know about that, that about you, or World yes. War II books. Yeah, That's so... Great. That's yeah. a real niche. <laughs> it is, it is, it is. And songs that make you happy. Do you listen to, to, to songs in, in surgery when you're operating? No, I don't, I don't really listen to music while, while I'm operating. Um, I, write, I, I like quite a big sort of range of sort of music. Um, probably my favourite band would probably still be U2. Mm. 
Did you see them recently when they came out? No, I didn't. But I, I apparently I that was their last ever show. Yeah. Did you hear that rumor? Because they're going to be retiring, retiring so I'm not yeah. coming out to Australia. Oh, they'd be a fair age now, I think. Yeah. yeah. Bless Bono. Yeah. Actually, that was my first ever concert. Right. I think in the 80s and right. still the most memorable. All right. Yeah, you too. In the 80s, you're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> I sure am. <laughs> uh, your dream collaboration or are you, are you living it now with the Dallas group? Um, yeah, so look, look I think uh, – um, I, I, I think that is, is, is a collaboration that will be strong. I still think, uh, as, as you know, because um, you've obviously spent time at, at, at RPA yourself, um, there was a strong group there between RPA, Sydney Uni and, and Jenea, which is a you know, private fertility group we, we uh, work for. And that has sort of fallen aside sort of, you know, really since – you know, Rob Jansen sort of um, sort of re- retired from his position and obviously since passed away. Um, and I think that's something that I, we really should try and... Resurrect. Resurrect, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think collaboration is the way to go. Yeah. Um, I think it's quite a unique, that sort of, you know, academic, you know, and then the, the, the public and private collaboration I think is actually really, really important. Mm, valuable. Yeah. You're a busy guy. I know you like waking up very early in the mornings. Yes. This is my last question to you, Dr. Marin. Yes. Top five tips for fitting the most into your day. Um, well, as you said, it is. It's five get, it's, tips, it's, Doctor. I, I, I don't have five tips. Okay, it's, give me it's, two then. It's, it's, it's getting up early. <laughs> How early do you get up? Uh, so I'd get up usually no later than five. Okay. So how many hours of sleep do you get a night on average? Uh, probably about six or something like that. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So you're one of those that thrives on six. Yeah. So you wake up at five. So I must admit, if on a Sunday I sleep in, I, I then feel nauseated all day. <laughs> Is that day. like 6.30? Yeah. That's, that's exactly. <laughs> well, I've got a nine and a seven-year-old and, yeah. my, and my seven-year-old comes in sort of relatively early. But if I do sleep in, I, I must admit, I just feel ill for the day. And then what do you do when you wake up? Do you have a ritual? Yeah, I do. I, I, I go down, have a coffee and an apple. A coffee and an apple? Yeah. What type of apple? Uh, just a red delicious apple. <laughs> and um, and then what do you do? Then do you do you exercise? What do you do? Uh, so I exercise in the evening. I okay. exercise in the evening. I always like to iron a shirt fresh every morning. <laughs> um, and then I'll often sort of I'll often do some I'll often do some reading in the morning. Yeah, okay. So yeah. World War Two or work related stuff. Work related stuff. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I often sort of find that. Yeah. That time of the morning, you're quite fresh, and you can actually take things in sort of quite easily whereas in the evening that's when I'll I'll read for sort of pleasure because yeah that's what I do as well morning coffee work-related stuff and then in the evenings totally non-medical related um anything else that you do in your day that you could give us a tip on how do you how do you focus you obviously have a lot of things going on so so I must admit my, my week is is really varied and I actually find that that actually makes it really interesting. So, mm-hmm. so for instance, like if I'm if I have a a heavy week where I'm sort of consulting for sort of three days, th- that gets a bit tiring at the end of that. And and so, uh, you know, actually sort of spending time in the public, spending time in the private, doing some operating, doing some 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 academic work. Like each time you go to a new place, you actually sort of feel a bit. 
refreshed. You, you actually don't have time to get bored. You're not yeah. getting bored, yeah. so yeah. it keeps and, you. And it's just you just go there and you're a bit like, oh, well, this is new and it's just a bit refreshed and not stale. Um, and I, I, th- I think that's the thing that I actually quite thrive and like. Um, whereas I think if I, I was just sitting in my office for five days, I, that, that, would be, mm. that would be hard. That's a really good point. Variation. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. See ya. Cheers. Ladies, I don't know about you, but I learned buckets of information by chatting with Anthony. Please share this episode with others if you think it will help them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel. And if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantabulous rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know, please, of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview or books to share. Until next time, stay phenomenal. Phenomenal.